and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, our legendary community. Welcome back for another week on Challenges That Change Us. The last few weeks, I've mentioned the Lifeline Push-Up Challenge that kicks off June 1st. Grab your teams or jump in and do it individually. It is for a great cause, increasing awareness around suicide and mental health in this country. We will add a link in the show notes for anyone that's looking for the details. I'm so excited to introduce you today to a guest that is extremely special to me. I want to introduce you to my beautiful Auntie Di. She has been so brave coming on and sharing her personal story of the last three years. When I talk about Bondi buses in my story in episode 57, I did not mention to you all that those Bondi buses were also visiting my beautiful family over in England at the same time. This is a story that when you see it on paper, you think there is no way so much could happen to one family at one time. It's unheard of. In the space of 40 days, my Uncle Barry, my Auntie Di, and my cousin Laura were all diagnosed with cancer. Not only that, this was at a time when there was initial rumblings of COVID in Europe, when no one even knew what the so-called COVID was. My Auntie was working on the front line in the hospital system, and within weeks, COVID came knocking on her door. At this time, there was no treatments, no vaccines, and no one knew what to expect. All we knew was this virus was extremely deadly. It was at this moment that their lives changed forever. Barry was diagnosed with a rare type of lymphoma as well as prostate cancer, and then Di and Laura were both diagnosed with breast cancer just a heartbeat after Barry's diagnosis. I've never met a family that has had to face so much adversity in the cancer world in such a short time. Di says it herself, there are books for navigating prostate cancer. There are books for navigating breast cancer. But there is no book out there telling you how to navigate three cancer treatment schedules during one of the worst world pandemics we have ever seen. I have learned so much from Di, Barry and Laura. Their resilience is extraordinary. Their zest for life is only to be admired and their ability to focus on others at a time when their whole world is falling apart is absolutely remarkable. For anyone going through or that has gone through the cancer world, you know how challenging it can be. Cancer does not make appointments. It has no boundaries. The road is long and rocky and I'm still absolutely blown away by the way that these guys have tackled it head on. Remember, Lifeline is there to listen for anyone that wants to talk. 13, 11, 14. Let me introduce you to my rock star, Auntie. 
Welcome, Di, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you, Ali. Thank you for having me. It feels like a great privilege to be here. It is pretty special, though. I mean, we don't get to spend a lot of time together no. or see each other, you know, see your smiling face. So it is, I feel like this is a bit of bit of our time today, this afternoon. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I love to start every episode with asking our guests what animal best describes them. And the reason I ask this is it just allows us to get to know you a little bit on a personal level before we dive into your story. Well, Ali, I knew you were going to ask this, and I really have gone through the whole animal kingdom trying to find what I identify with. But I ended up thinking, well, there's one I aspire to, so I'll, I'll tell you what I aspire to being like, and it's probably pretty common for a lot of people, but it's definitely a dog. The loyalty, the unquestioning love and the companionship that a dog gives you is really a sort of aspiration for me. I I hope I'm that sort of friend to people and that sort of family member really, you know, it's they're great companions and Oh, to be like one. <laughs> well, if it helps, if it helps, after your last trip down here to see us, my husband was just like, what an amazing, incredible, oh. supportive, loving woman Di is. Honestly, that was the oh. conversation we had oh, after you left. Kind. So yeah. if you're aspiring to be it, I think you show all of those characteristics and you you live and breathe them every day. Well, I, I hope so. But, you know, it seems like a grand aspiration, but... We've got a, a dog, as you know, and wouldn't be without him for the world. Is the best friend we've got. Yeah. And, Di, we've come on today to have a conversation about the challenges that your family's faced. And at the, during this time that you guys were going through everything, we and my husband and I and my children were going through stuff as well. So, honestly, I kind of feel like some of this I'm going to hear for the first time because we were so all-consumed in our own medical at the same time that you had so much going on with your family unit. But a great place to start, I think, would be around your move over to the UK. So you were living in Brisbane, got to see you a lot more, and then, you know, you had to leave. Do you want to start with that? Yeah, we were were living a normal life. That's quite true. And then all of a sudden, one day, um, we made quite a sudden decision to move to the UK. As you know, my younger sister had breast cancer and when she became terminally ill, she just wanted to go home to England. So we were very close. Our two families were very close and we'd spent a lot of time together. And all the time she was ill, we had uh, spent that time with her and she was just natural for us all to go. So at the end of 2009, we all packed up uh, and we went to the UK. She had been given a terminal diagnosis with just two or three months to live. So we went over there with a specific aim of making them as good as they possibly could be. That was just what we wanted to do, and it was what she wanted. So we upped and off and went and um, got her uh, set up in England, and she went from strength to strength. She got a little bit better. She outlived the two to three months they'd given her. She was really quite a lot better. And we had to make a decision then, were we going to come home or were we going to stay? And Barry and I, my husband and I, decided that we would stay. And Bill, our youngest, wanted to come with us. And Laura was committed in Brisbane so with her work. So she she just came for a sort of long holiday. But we stayed there with my sister until she died, which was 15 months later. 15 fantastic months. 
15 brilliant wow. months. We they were the best. They were the best. You know, it was just what you know we we wanted. It was if if you're going to have to lose one of the people that you're closest to, then the privilege of looking after them during that time is incredible. And I'm only imagining, Di, that there would have also been quite a special element of because you had packed up and moved overseas that every day, you know, when we get so caught up in yeah. trying to live our current life and be available to someone yeah. else, like I imagine there would have been hopefully some more time within yeah. each day to spend with her. It was real quality time. We made that decision and we, we we lived it. And we lived it inspired by her because she was incredibly positive. You know, she never once um, felt sorry for herself or, you know, sank into despair. She was incredibly positive. So it was just a delightful time. And, um, you know, losing it was horrendous because none of us were prepared for it because she'd been so positive. And she'd far outlived the time frame that they'd given her. Yeah. She already had because she had breast cancer for 10 years, so she uh, she had it quite aggressively. She was quite young when she got it, only just over 40. And then you you ended up staying overseas <laughs> and... Surprisingly. <laughs> we, we didn't intend to at all, but it's just that circumstances... Changed by 15 months, um, I'd got a job, which I ended up, you know, I really loved the job. I was a transplant nurse, as you know, in a big teaching hospital in England, and um, and it was fantastic. I, I loved that work, even though working for the NHS is no party these days. <laughs> but the work itself and the, the people I worked with were remarkable, so that was brilliant. And also then... Mum and Dad were still in England, and Mum then got breast cancer. So we sort of stayed because of that, and then she developed dementia, and every day we asked ourselves, you know, what are we, how are we going to go back? Are we going to leave them? And in the end, it was a sort of decision to to stay with Mum and Dad. They were very elderly, well into the 80s by then, and we ended up staying. Uh, but we... You know, we we were always very torn about whether to come back or not to come back. And still to this day, I mean, we'll get to that at the yeah. end of this podcast. And we're still yeah. in that space, you know. Yeah. We only had a conversation about that a couple of weekends ago around, you know, about going back and staying and the benefits yeah. and the pros and cons to both. And so, Di, I, I wanted to ask you about because really you mentioned that life had changed when you left Australia, but it, it just kept changing. I mean, when COVID mm. hit over there yeah. was like really when things kind of geared yeah. up, wasn't it? Yeah. COVID changed everything for us. Until that time, we struggled a lot. Well, we hadn't struggled a lot. We, we potted along, you know, and life was quite normal. I, I still tell people, you know, to all intents and purposes, we were a normal family. <laughs> but when COVID hit, that that was that was when it all went pear-shaped. COVID was was the, the the game changer. I was working on the front line, of course, in the hospital, so I was very exposed to COVID, and Barry was supposedly very vulnerable because he has no spleen, courtesy of, a, of the accident as a young man. So we realised that actually I was not going to be able to work with COVID patients. But in fact, you know, being over 60, the hospital doesn't let you work with COVID patients anyway. However, I worked in a department that was going to staff the, um, the intensive care 
unit. So we, it was very dramatic. Life changed overnight, being a theatre nurse, and all of a sudden we were training to be intensive care nurses. And, you know, the news that was coming to England, for, particularly from Italy, was really bad, and we were preparing to be hit very badly, and it was a very, very scary time. Because no one knew anything then. No. You know, this is the very, very, very early days of COVID. This is March 2020. I had a placement to go to Africa and teach African nurses how to work in the operating theatre for three months, and I was going at the end of March. So the first thing that happened was that trip was cancelled. Absolutely devastated. I'd taken about six months to set it up. I've been to Malawi two or three times before because, as you know, I'm a volunteer for a surgical children's surgical charity in developing countries. So I knew where I was going. It was all set up, and I was just so excited. The hospital had given me three months off. Couldn't wait. And then COVID put paid to that. And it was like, it's off, die. You know, we're not going anywhere. You know, we're not going to blooming York, <laughs> let alone Malawi. So that was off. And uh, I was pretty devastated. And then the next thing was, how am I going to manage mum and dad? I was really their primary carers. They're in their 90s, and I'm working at the front line of COVID. And how are we going to manage a home with Barry shielding? You know, what are we going to do? And that word shielding, die that wasn't familiar to us over here. It might have been, but I never heard that till you said, till you right, said that. Okay. Can you just explain what shielding is? So um, when COVID started, the UK political wise guys decided that the way they would manage lockdown is we would be completely locked down the country would lock down completely to shield the vulnerable and the elderly. And that meant we were all going to be stay inside, locked in. You know, you could only go out for once a day for walking purposes, a bit like you were here short term. But for us, it was it was originally going to be three weeks and then it just get extended and extended. And we were virtually shut in at home with that and you had to have your shopping online and all that sort of thing except for the fact that I was a frontline worker and frontline workers were expected to keep going so I had to keep working and we had to manage Barry's shielding around that well Barry has never actually acknowledged that he's vulnerable in any way I think you know him (laughs) well enough to know that he doesn't do being vulnerable. Not in the vocab. (laughs) He barely even remembered that he didn't have a spleen, so he couldn't work out why he was vulnerable. So his his idea of shielding was adjusted slightly. But the UK, (laughs) you know, they we have a conservative government and they are much more inclined to uh, let people make their own decisions and manage their own self. So it was probably a little bit more flexible than here in Australia, which seemed very extreme to us. But however, we were supposed to stay at home. So here we were shielding. Barry's supposed to stay at home, and I'm supposed to carry on my work on the front line, protecting him. So we set up a very elaborate plan where I would take my clothes off at the front door every night and put them in a box, go upstairs and shower, and we would protect him as, as best we could. And he had to stay at home. He was furloughed, so he was paid by the government instead of his workplace to stay at home because he was in that category of extremely vulnerable. So that was okay. You know, luckily we just still had some income. So I carried on going to work and we sort of were managing this plan 
Uh, and I'd sort of decided that once we got COVID into the hospital, I would not go and visit mum and dad anymore because it would be too risky for them if I brought COVID into their life. So we got to end of March and we had COVID in the hospital. And so I stopped being able to visit mum and dad, which was really hard because they were also locked down. Mum had, and you will understand this, extreme she severe dementia. So dad and her were locked in together, unable to see anyone else because they were a couple. And he could have seen someone from outside if he was single, but they were a couple. But to all intents and purposes, he was a single. It was, it was really cruel to people like mum and dad. Anyway, uh, it did, we didn't have to potter on like this for very long because uh, one bam, four weeks later, I got COVID. I mean, apart from feeling pretty certain I got it at work because I never went anywhere else. Uh, and I, you know, was working with patients that we didn't know the status of them. We didn't know who had COVID and who didn't have COVID. The UK didn't have the testing capacity it needed. We were treating people who have unknown status. And also we had this huge problem with no PPE and it's just a nightmare. Four weeks later, bang, I, I came home one night and I thought, I've got COVID. <laughs> I went and had a shower. I came downstairs and said to me, don't, don't touch anything that I touch tonight. I'm going to eat my dinner. I'm going to put it in the dishwasher or the plates. And then I'm going to bed and I'm going to stay there for two weeks. So he sort of looked a bit aghast. And I said, and just let me think about it and I'll work out how we can manage this because there's only the two of us in this house. I've got COVID and you're extremely vulnerable. So we devised a plan where I would stay in the bedroom and he would bring the meals to the door and put them at the doorway. And I'd come in and take the plates off the tray and eat the food, put the plates back on the tray. He'd pick the tray up, go downstairs and put them in the dishwasher with gloves on. And I would have to you know, look after the, clean the bathroom every time I'd used it and leave it for him and had one bathroom. And this uh, is all why you're feeling horrifically <laughs> unwell, right? Like yeah. we haven't even touched on how sick you got with COVID. Oh, terribly sick. Yeah, I just had to, I just had to work it out before I could take to my bed. And I could, you know, I could still think at that stage. But anyway, I stayed in the room for two weeks. I got steadily worse, which is the way COVID works. You know, your breathing gets worse and worse, and I got steadily worse, and it was scary. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was very scary. But we had amazing neighbours, and we had amazing friends. And, my, as you know, my brother-in-law is a GP here in Australia. He rang me every single day. And I remember on day nine saying to him, do you think I'm going to be all right? Because day 10 and 11 were traditionally the days you got worse if you were not going to get better. And he, there was a long silence and he said, I, I think you're going to be all right. And I thought, well, that sounds promising. <laughs> anyway, I was, I, I was okay. I, I, I was breathless. I couldn't get out of bed. I, was, I tried to get up to the window and do all the things that you had to do. And plus, we luckily done the training to, to work in ICU. So I knew what we were doing with patients that were really sick, like we were proning them. I don't know if you understand that, but we were nursing patients on their front because it's better for their breathing. So I just proned myself 
you know, age for each day. And it really helped my breathing. And I did a lot of the breathing exercises that we learned how to do. I just, and eventually after two weeks, I, I was sort of like obviously over the worst. And also, I mean, you couldn't sort of test regularly and see when you were negative then because there wasn't that availability for testing. And I was just going to say that like now when we listen to someone having COVID, like our, I guess, lens that we view it through is very different. Like if someone rings me now and says they have COVID, I think, oh, they might be sick for a few days, maybe a bit longer, but, you know, they're going to be okay. But in these early days when it was just hitting Europe for the first time, people were dying everywhere. Yeah, that's what it was like. And also it was media-driven. There was a definite campaign of fear driven by the media. So very early on when I had COVID, actually I think before I had COVID, we stopped watching the news. It was too scary, and they just said, you know, we're not going to watch the news. So, But, you know, I was still very much in touch with the hospital because I worked there, and they were ringing me up, and a, a friend of mine who's a registered nurse, she rang me up one day, and she said, you know, Di, you won't leave it too long to call the paramedics, will you? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're, you're breathless. And I said, oh, I don't feel too bad. She said, well, you can't finish a sentence. You know, she said, that's the definition of breathless. So I said, oh, right, okay. Okay, anyway, I didn't want to go to the hospital at all, absolutely not. But I certainly didn't want to go to our local hospital because our local hospital is not the hospital I worked in. We live near a small district hospital. I didn't want to go there. Kept saying to me, you know, don't be daring the paramedics. You know, I'm going to Leeds. If I'm going to be treated, I'm going to be treated by my own colleagues, not in the local district hospital anyway. These, these were sort of things we had to deal with. But the really, really good fortune for us was we had just moved into a new house in, in Weatherby. We just bought it in a, I mean, we've looked back so many times and said that we think that God said one day, I think the Leals are going to need a bit of help. We'll put them in 29 Sandringham Road. And we, we lived between a doctor and a, a very highly skilled medical nurse both working at the same hospital as me, and they they saw us through. Which is going to make so much more sense as we start to let this story unravel because we are just starting. Like, you know, this is the beginning of a very, very yeah. long three years. Yeah, yeah, it is. Those two families became incredibly important to us. They, they ensured that we had shopping, they put stuff on our doorstep, they walked the dog, they chopped our firewood. You know, they they were absolutely unbelievable. And and I always knew that if we shouted through the wall, because we are in an end terrace house in England, that our neighbour would hear. Mm. So anyway, I got over the, the acute stage of COVID and expected to go back to work. I said, kept saying to them, just give me two weeks off and I'm, I'm coming back. I, you know, got to be part of this. This is what we are nurses for and, you know, I'll be back. I never got better. I just didn't get better. I could hardly get out of bed. If I did get out of bed, it was only for a couple of hours. I'm sure you'll identify all this. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'd go downstairs. I think, great. It's, it's so the weather's beautiful. It was a wonderful spring. I'd sit outside, and 20 minutes later, I'd be, I got to go back to bed. I was just hopeless i had palpitations my brain didn't work it was it was really hopeless anyway i 
kept going on like this and we couldn't see doctors. Doc- no doctors would see patients with COVID. So I had to have on over the phone appointments and I kept ringing up my GP and saying, you know, I've got to go back to work. This is ridiculous. You know, we, we, we really need to be at work now. I, but I, I don't know that I can do it. And they said, oh, we'll give you another sick note, you know. And at this stage, we didn't know about long COVID no, at this stage either. Long COVID, no, so it went to, this went on for about six weeks. And I started to think, this is just nuts. You know, I've got to get back to work. One day, a girl I work with rang me up and she said, you know, Di, I've, I've heard about these, this, these people. There's a whole heap of people online and they're and they're not getting better from covid you know and they're they're all starting to say they've got palpitations and their breathlessness isn't going away and their fatigue it just sounds like you and i thought geez that's all i need anyway um i read a bit about it and and i spoke to the doctor and i said you know what's the story why isn't this going away she said i said are you seeing any other patients that aren't getting better she said we are starting to see quite a few patients that aren't getting better and eventually you know after another couple of months they they gave it a name and they called it long covid and um there you go i i just did not get better you know the palpitations didn't stop and um went on and on and then as you will know the next thing that happened was Laura moved to England, our daughter, our our oldest. And she had been furloughed from Flight Centre and she was worried worried about that I wasn't getting any better. So after two applications to the government, she was allowed to leave Australia and she came to us in August. And I wasn't really better in August, but I was sort of getting better. And I was aiming to go back to work in September. And occupational health had said to me, we want you to have a holiday before you come back to work. I said, I've been off for weeks, I've been off for months, I don't, you know, I don't, don't really need a holiday. They said, we want you to have a proper holiday, you know, where you go away and you really don't think about being poorly and then come back to work. It's, it's fine, that's what we think is best for you. So I said, okay, so we booked this holiday, Laura was there, booked a holiday to Italy. And that was when... <laughs> The shit really hit the fan. I feel like I'm going to start to cry now. I know the story and I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And I'm like, I'm so going to cry. (laughs) Well, then we started with the next problem, which was Barry, your beloved uncle and your mum's brother. He had been having some problems with his prostate and he was starting to be investigated during the summer, so our summer, and he started his investigations in about August. So uh, just as we were planning this trip, he was having some investigations. And then on the day we were flying out to Italy, two hours before we went to the airport, the surgeon, who was actually a colleague of mine who was treating for his prostate cancer, rang me up and said, I don't want you to worry about this, which is huge red flag (laughs) but Barry has more problems than his prostate cancer he has lymph nodes up all over his abdomen and we need to investigate that so I said to the the surgeon I said should we cancel our holiday I said because we're actually leaving in two hours and he said no 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 you go and have your holiday 
and I'll set everything up for when you come back. And as soon as you arrive back, uh, we'll get it. We'll get him investigated, and it'll be fine. But the prostate cancer really has to go on hold now. This is more important. So I got off the phone, and Barry was out of the room, and I had to think quickly: Am I going to tell him this, or am I not going to tell him this? So I thought, you know, I'm not going to tell him this. He's going to ruin his holiday. I'm, I can, I can manage with this. I thought, but I think I'm going to have to tell Laura because I just might have to tell somebody. So I told Laura and said the two of us knew. And I said, I'm, I'm really pretty keen not to tell him during the holiday. So we didn't. So we get on the plane and we fly over to Italy and trying to forget about all this. And then we get to Italy <laughs> and we're just checking into the first place we show it, where we're staying. And he suddenly says to me, what do you think of this? And he lifts up his T-shirt and he has this almighty rash all around his abdomen that is easily identifiable as shingles. So there we are. We're in Italy, first day of the holiday. I've got, I'm trying to keep this other news from him and all of a sudden he's got shingles. And just pause for a second because shingles is a bitch. Like, shingles. You know, like we're, we're gonna, there's going to be some big things in this story, but like just on a very light level because shingles doesn't kill you. But, my God, it, it has hurts a really good like girl. hell. Yeah. yeah, it does. It makes you feel like you're going to, like it is horrible and you are so sick. Yeah, he was he was so sick, and we were going to Puglia, which is where very you know there's not a lot of English spoken. It's pretty remote. Top medical services. Oh and, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and I have to just say that this is in COVID times. Yes, <laughs> in Italy. We have, I know. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> yeah, with someone that's already vulnerable, yeah. sweet, and now you know he's going to have another like a couple of can like oh my I can't even picture it right but you're doing a great job of explaining it because <laughs> it was a bit of a nightmare but um anyway you know challenge is a challenge and i thought right okay i've got to work out how to treat this up so I, at least i've got the contacts back at home so i emailed my wonderful neighbor the medical nurse and i said to her what's the treatment what's the treatment for i know what the treatment is i know he has to have a cyclovia i have no idea of the dose she said, don't worry, I'll find out for you. So she found out for me. And, we, and, and then I said, try and persuade him to go to hospital. A whole new ball game. No, 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 no. I'll be better in a couple of days. No, I'm not going to hospital. I said, Barry, if we don't get this and get this into you in 72 hours, you, you are going to be in big trouble. So he agreed and went to hospital. Well, you couldn't get into the hospital because it was COVID time, so they didn't let you in. But they will speak to you through a little opening in the wall with a grid on it. <laughs> and we're there trying to explain what's happening in very, very poor English. Anyway, in the end, we did. We got the acyclovir, and he got the treatment, and we we managed to stay for the whole holiday. But we had a lot of backup plans to come home if at any stage he wasn't coping, and uh, he kept saying, "What?" Well, so he, he, we stuck it out, and he. By the time we came back from holiday, he was, he was pretty much better, but he had a very nasty rash. I sent a friend of mine, nursing friend of mine, a picture, and uh, she said, oh, my goodness, she said, you hear about shingles and you might have seen it and you see a bit of a rash and you look in a book and you think, oh, my God, that's, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. 
Should have done this, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I think there's something in the genetics, right? If we, if people haven't listened to my episode, go back and listen and then listen to this episode. And I'm pretty sure there's this genetic link that says if it's rare and if it can be extreme, let's give it to them, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. God. I mean, honestly, really, it was so bizarre. We did laugh about it, you know, and I think really the laughing sort of kept us going. But we don't. We got through the holiday. We got home. We didn't get any more COVID, and we, we got home and arrived at Manchester Airport. And it was very late. We had to stay the night because it was so late when we arrived. And I had to tell him that he had to go straight to the hospital on the way home the next morning. Why? Because actually, you've got something else going on on top of your prostate cancer. How did he receive that? Because we haven't spoken about this. Was he just like, it would have been really hard because you'd been processing it for two weeks, you and Laura, and then he's just getting told when tomorrow when you wake up we're going to hospital because something really serious is going on. Yeah, uh, he was a bit shocked. But, you know, he's like, he's really tough and he just said, oh, well, okay then, you know, like we'll, we'll, we'll have to do it. So I said, and he was a little bit annoyed that I hadn't told him that, you know, at least he had a good holiday. Apart yeah. from small matter Well, of now singles. you're back, right? <laughs> I know, but, but you know what? That was a good holiday considering what this next little version looks like, right? Far so out. we tootle off to the hospital and get all the blood tests and the scans that were all organised, had all been organised for us, which was actually an amazingly amazing thing to happen because at this time the NHS in England was almost closed down to anything but COVID. So to get treated for other cancers at this time was unusual. Mm. But anyway, um, I think because I was staff and, you know, because I don't know why, we were just dead lucky. He was treated promptly and we saw the specialist. And, of course, you know, he turned out not to have just any old lymphoma. He turned out to have a really unusual one that only 70 people a year have in the UK. So that was another thing. But, you know, if you have an interest in cancer, the doctors love you and you get really good treatment because it's interesting. This is the the flip side to being rare. (laughs) But and what's the name of the cancer dye? Because people will be wondering. He's got a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and the type he has is called mantle cell, mantle cell lymphoma. And that's just because of which cells he's. Uh, are affected, and he's is a cancer of the of the B cells. So that means that his immune system is virtually, you know, very seriously compromised. Can't respond to infection. Quite apart from that, he doesn't have a spleen. That's a separate issue, but with the same effect. You know, it, it, it prevents you fighting infections, which is probably why I got the um, shingles so badly. So we we started down the pathway of being treated for mantle cell lymphoma. The prostate cancer is now firmly on the back burner and um, shingles is sort of like just about finished. So we're, we're fully on to mantle cell lymphoma now and we, we get to see the specialist, of which there are really, I think, very few specialists in the UK, but one of them happens to be in Leeds, which is where, where I worked, and highly... You know, well regarded. So we go to see him and he explains what is going to happen to Barry. He's going to have to have six months of chemo and he's going to have to then follow up with a stem cell transplant. So the six months, even though he was actually a bit older than the cohort that 
is has stem cell transplants because he was pretty fit and they considered him very fit for his age they gave him the younger man's protocol which is more serious chemo plus the stem cell tra- transplant that was what was what, he, what was all about so on um December 1st, he had a pick line put in, ready for his chemo, and he was starting the next day. That was great. In the meantime, I had been called for my mammogram, which had been delayed from March. It was due in March, but because of COVID, it had been delayed. And I was called in for, the, for my regular mammogram. And I was thinking, oh, you know what? I just can't do with this mammogram. I, I haven't got time for this. Barry's ill. I need to look after him. I it's not a priority right you know, now. I'm still struggling a bit with long COVID. In all this time, because he'd been ill when we'd been away, I hadn't gone back to work. They'd extended my leave. And I was still pretty fatigued anyway. So, you know, that was okay. So I thought, oh, you know, this mammogram is too much. I'm not going to go. Anyway, I didn't cancel it and it came to the day and I thought, oh gosh, you know, I might as well just go. It's just a local van in town, the mobile one, I'll go down. So I tootle down, have my mammogram, go home, carry on with looking after Barry and sorting his health out and everything else, the implications of that. And within about a week, I think I was recalled, you know, you've got to come in, we need to just redo your mammogram again. I'm thinking, oh, look, I just really don't need this. Pain in my ass. Just like, <laughs> you know. Right I, now, I, it's not a priority. Yeah, right now, it's not a priority. You know, I'm just, I, I haven't got time. So anyway, I tootle back in there and I take Laura with me for support and all's well. And, and so we get to the hospital and she's not really allowed in anyway. So I said to her, go and have a coffee and Come and pick me up when I'm done. And the next thing, the ultrasound. There's a lump. Well, <laughs> I just lost my sister to breast cancer and I knew what was lying ahead and I just thought, you know what, I haven't got time for this. I just haven't got time for this. <sighs> Yeah. And I just burst into tears and I, I, I said to them, I'm sorry, I'm really teary. It's just that, you know, I, I've just lost my sister to, bre- to breast cancer. And my husband's really sick. I just don't need breast cancer right now, you know. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry. <laughs> cancer doesn't really. We can't change it. <laughs> <laughs> Cancer's not actually going to listen to how busy you are right now. <laughs> doesn't make appointments, you know. <laughs> so I thought, oh, right, that's really, really, really great. So um, I sort of. Was struggling a bit with how to tell Barry, but anyway, we went home and told him, and he was a bit gobsmacked. You know, I I sort of thought, well, you know, best case scenario, um, you know, I work in a hospital where there are very very good breast surgeons. I'll just go and see whoever my team tells me is the best. And again, dead lucky because it's COVID, and we're heading now for second lockdown. The first lockdown had been from March till June. The second lockdown was starting in October. You know, they were starting. The numbers were going up of COVID. The hospital was shutting down more and more. And, you know, treatment treatment was getting delayed for everybody. But, you know, sometimes you get lucky, don't you? And we got the two cancers that did not stop treatment through COVID. The breast unit was still going and the blood cancer, the hematology, unit was still treated by patients so you know we had so many things to be thankful for 
Anyway, so I go along, get, go see the surgeon, and you know, she says, well, you can have your surgery on the 18th of December. I said, oh, that's great. Really, that's really good. I'll just check Barry's schedule. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll well, just I check if Barry's I can have schedule. it. So I said to her, <laughs> so that's a Friday. Will I be okay by Monday? And she said, well, it's just day surgery time, but Monday. And I said, well, it's just that Barry's got his second round of chemo starting on that Monday, and that's his, that's his bad one, and I'll need to take him into hospital. He has to go in every day for four days for the day. And she said, mm, probably. So I said, all right, okay. So we took along happily thinking, I'll, be, I'll just got the weekend to get over this breast cancer business, and then we'll have to get back to looking after Barry and make sure he can get in for his chemo because obviously he wasn't going to be able to drive himself so we we sort of came to terms with that and um then the next thing that happened was it was very shortly after after my diagnosis like a few days laura woke me up one morning we had a big plan to do something that day Actually, the plan was that I had been doing a bereavement counselling course and it was the last day of that counselling course. And I was going to do the online course in the morning, it was a Saturday, and she was going to take up wild swimming and she'd organised to go wild swimming with a complete stranger in the Yorkshire Dales. Wild swimming, Wild did swimming. you say? <laughs> what, what is that? Wild swimming is swimming in rivers and lakes and things like that, as in not in a pool. And it's really quite a big thing in the UK. And Laura decided to take it up. So she was going into the heart of the Yorkshire Dales to meet some unknown stranger who was going to show her how to wild swim. I woke up in the morning and I thought, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do my last day of the course, I'm going to go with my daughter and make sure she's a meeting a strange <laughs> man. In the middle of COVID. Maybe I'll just go and just be a mum for yeah. today. <laughs> so I got up really early and I got ready and I went into her bedroom and I said, you know, I've been thinking in the night law, I'm not going to do the last day of the course. It's optional anyway. I've already completed the course. This is just the session that ties it all up. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to come with you. We're going to go to dance and do it together. And she said, all right, okay. And she burst into tears and I said, What's wrong? You know, I thought you might be pleased. And she said, I've got a lump. I said, What sort of lump? And she said, I've got a lump in my breast. And I said, Oh, right, okay, let's have a look. So we had a look at the lump. And I thought, Yeah, that's a lump that needs seeing to. So I said, Okay, yeah, this, we're going to have to get someone to look at this, Laws. I said, But you know what? It's Saturday. We can't do it today. We're going to do it on Monday, and today we're going to go, and you're going to swim, and we are going to enjoy it, okay? We're just going to put this to one side until the time comes that we can deal with it, and that's on Monday. So she said, okay, and she pulled herself together like the tough little cookie she is, and off we went to the Dales. And I'll tell you this little side story that is another of the little gifts we got in this mostly horrific time. We went to the Dales and we met this guy and we were walking along the side of the river to get to the place where they were going to do their swim. And he said to us, oh, by the way, this is the time of year where if you're really lucky, you can, you can watch the salmon leaping up the falls. Have you heard about the salmon leaping up no. the falls? to find their spawning ground. It only happens at a certain time of year in the UK. And the salmon swim up the falls and they leap up 
to get to the next level, to get to these very distant spawning grounds where they lay their eggs and then that's the end of their life. Once they've laid their eggs, they, they die. That's the end of them. And it's really awesome. Like nobody ever sees salmon leaping. It's really rare. You know, you've just got to be looking and they come out of the water in a second and they're gone. And we're going, oh, gosh, that's amazing. We walk around this corner. He says, oh, it's just out of those falls. Oh, look, there's some. And we both stood there and said, oh, my God, you know, there's salmon leaping up the falls. Something most people would never, ever see in their life. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe this is a sign. You know, this is a this is amazing. This is a little sign. Everything is going to be okay. So we 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 went along, and we and the bloke was gobsmacked. He was saying, "Oh my God, nobody ever sees that. You guys have just turned up, walked to the river, and there's the salmon leaping up the falls." They're going, "Oh, that's really good." Well, if it's rare, <laughs> if it's rare, yeah, if it's rare, we'll have We're it. We're there, <laughs> good and bad. So anyway, so that. Uh, that was that day. We went home, and on Monday, there we had to sort of deal with the reality. And uh, Laura went through the process of going to the GP, and the GP saying, "No, I don't think this is anything to worry about. Nothing at all. Uh, I'll just refer you on the quick fast track you, which is a two-week pathway in the UK where anybody with suspected cancer." is guaranteed to be seen in two weeks, so it's the quickest you can really be seen. She was seen on that pathway um, within two weeks, but what happened before that was I had my appointment with the surgeon for my surgery. So that week I went to see her, this wonderful, gorgeous breast cancer surgeon, and she organised all my surgery and she told me all about it and she um, you know, made sure that I could accommodate Barry's chemo around it and all that sort of thing. And then I said to her, you know what, I've just got one more thing I want to ask you. And she said, what's that? I said, will you see my daughter? I said, because she found a breast lump on Saturday. And she looked at me and there was a long silence and she said, my secretary will ring you this afternoon. And that afternoon they rang and she was seen immediately, like the next clinic, which was about a few days away. And there we were, both facing breast cancer surgery. And six weeks, six weeks from being a perfectly normal family to three quarters of it, (laughs) having a cancer diagnosis to deal with. All at once. All at once. When COVID's going on. When COVID's going on. And you have long COVID. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I remember you telling me and I just like I couldn't even process it, right? Like I was like my first thought was is there something in the water? You know, honestly, <laughs> that was my first thought. I was like where have you guys been? Yeah. Like I don't know any other family that has had in the space of 6 weeks no. three people diagnosed with four cancers. Everybody says that. And, you know, you can buy self-help books. I looked in all the bookshops. <laughs> There's no book for this. <laughs> yeah. You can buy self-help help books for lymphoma. You can buy self-help books for prostate cancer. But you can't find any for all three happening at once. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we know what our job is next, Di. You and I can get together and we can write a book on how to map your way and navigate through adversity coming at you one. It's the Bondi buses, right? One after another after another. That's what I said to you. I recognise the Bondi Bondi buses. There's a load of them in Leeds. Yep. (laughs) They're all standing there at the depot waiting to be called out to Sandringham Road. Yep. Yep. (laughs) How 
did you process or you weren't able to? Like in that moment, how did you as how did you process? I don't know. I mean, you just go through the steps, don't you? You just know. In a way, I knew what I had to do. You know, like I, I'm a nurse and I knew the hospital. Both those cancers were treated at my hospital. I mean, I work for a big trust, which is has four hospitals. And both, all those cancers were, was especially of my, my particular hospital. So I knew a lot of the stuff and I had enormous, you know, good fortune to be able to ask questions and to be able to die, you know, know where to go. So, you know, we were lucky. You know, I can't tell you how many times we said to each other how lucky we are because we had fantastic neighbours who looked after us. We had fantastic care in a health system that was really struggling under the weight of COVID. We had, we just, you know, in lots of ways we were so lucky. And we were, we were so lucky because actually, you know, Barry's really tough and Laura's really tough. And you're really tough. I didn't feel tough. I, I didn't <laughs> feel tough. I just felt like, hmm, oh, right, you know, this is crazy. And you tell people, and I mean, I was embarrassed to tell people. I remember thinking on the third diagnosis, how am I going to tell the neighbours? You know, they, they know everything about us now because they've looked after us for the last six months, you know, in our hour of need. I said, how am I going to tell them this? And in the end, I told one of the neighbours, the nurse, and I said to her, could you tell Anna? Because I, I can't. I can't tell anyone else. I can't watch the look on their face. You know, I can't. I can't find the words when I know how shocked they're going to be. Mm. You know, it was it was difficult to tell people. You know, I because it was so difficult for them to hear it. You know, it was it was really difficult for them, for them to hear. It. And I remember my really one of my very very close friend at work. She, I'd, I'd rung her up and told her every step of the way what was happening, and she never swears. Sue never swears. She's the most ultimate English lady. And in the end, she just said to me, bloody hell, die. And I thought, oh, gee, it must be bad. <laughs> this must be serious. <laughs> it must be serious. I know I had a little chat to myself before this episode and thought, Ali, keep your swear words at bay because, mate, I, there are some serious words that belong in this episode. Well, I can't say I haven't used them myself, but <sighs> when she did, you know, I yeah. thought, oh. And, and, and then she said, bloody hell, die. <laughs> and it's validating, isn't it, when someone else can have that response because you're in yeah, it and living it every yeah. day, but sometimes you just need other people just to hold a bit of a mirror up and just say, you yeah. know what? Yeah. yeah. And we, yeah. Had, we had some other huge good fortune. You know, we had, we had amazing people around us. I told you I'd been doing the bereavement counselling course. And my mentor was a lady called Meg who's in her late 70s and the most incredibly wise woman. And I had to ring her on the day that Laura told me about the lump because I wasn't going to do that, that session that day. So I rang her in the morning and I'd already told her about myself and Barry because actually I'd started this course just before Barry was diagnosed. So I kept having to, and because bereavement counselling, you, you'll understand this, but in bereavement counselling, you have to sort of bear your soul. You know, a lot of the sessions mean you have to bear your soul. And I thought, you know, 
I don't know how I'm going to get through this course because I don't know. I don't know how ready I am to bear my soul. And it was too raw. It was too raw. You were you were in it, yes, but you were like just yeah. kind of wrapping your head around yeah. Barry's diagnosis at that yeah. stage. You know, yeah. So I told I was telling her about it. So obviously, when Laura had found that lump and we didn't and I didn't finish the course on that day I rang her up and I told her I said you, you won't believe this like that um Laura's found a lump now and anyway she was amazing and she became my mentor and counsellor and she to this day is still counselling me she she said to me would you like me to you know, would you like me to speak to you? Would you like? To? And I said, I'd love you to, because I really felt like I haven't been to have much counselling. I'd love a bit of counselling when my sister died, and I didn't think it was much use. But I'm not really one for counselling. I'm much more one for talking to my friends and talking things through that way. And and you're much more one for supporting others. To be honest, like you are, you much prefer to sit in the space of being available to other people. Than to shine a light on yeah. what, what's hard for you. I, I like to think that that, that that was the truth, but this, you know, this time it was really difficult. So I gratefully accepted her, and she I, and I spoke every week, and then we managed to I managed to wean myself off it. She without charge. She just talked to me every week on the phone, and she's and still now, even now while I'm in Australia, she emails me. And I email her and she said, we can FaceTime anytime if you want. But What a legend. She's just been absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. I did a podcast um, with a girl the other day around grief in particular and we were talking about how grief pulls you together and, and sometimes breaks things up and, you know, it's just such a such a dynamic beast. Like you yeah. just never know how you're going to be. or what. And we're talking about grief here because within a space of six weeks, your whole life as you knew it, had changed forever. Yeah. And Di, so at this point you had all had your diagnosis. Yeah. And it was probably around the December mark and between December and June the following year you all had treatment. Yeah, absolutely. We all had treatment. The major challenge really was managing the diary because we were in lockdown. We were in full lockdown by January and it lasted until, I think it lasted until March. No, I think it lasted until July, June or July. It was a very long lockdown in the UK. So all our treatment was during lockdown, which was quite challenging because we sometimes had to go to the hospital three times a day. Anyway, so my major job was managing the diary and trying to alter the appointments. Whilst having treatment for your own cancer? Well, particularly having my radiation treatment because while I had my radiation treatment, Barry was having his stem cells harvested. So I had to try and ask them if they would adjust my appointments so that I could only be at the hospital for the minimum time so I could take him home, you know, within the... Time I can't even, like, I can't even, when you say people can't digest it, I know this and I can't digest it, right? Like, I'm <laughs> sitting here just, I don't know if anyone heard, but I just swore under my breath again. <laughs> I think that's like the fifth one for this episode because I'm just like, what on earth? Like, how? I mean, you're going to look back on this one day and just think, how did we get through that? I like, know. oh, my and, God. And we, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I was lucky. I only had five lots of radiation, so it was only five days. But they happened to be the days he was having his stem cells harvested. 
And there was nothing we could do to change either. So we just had to. And we, you know, the, our hospital trip was 25 miles round trip, which is nothing really compared to Australian, but it's quite a long way in England. <laughs> anyway, we got through that and we came to the middle of the year and mum had recently fallen and broken her hip and had been hospitalised. That's another little story which I won't go into in great detail because due to COVID, we were very restricted from spending time with her, which will forever be a lasting sadness I have. And in May, she, she died. And, you know, that was difficult, difficult to cope with, even though, you know, we told ourselves how lucky we were that she was 94. She'd lived a great life. And we were blessed because we'd had her for so long. So anyway, we got to the middle of the year and things all started to settle down. And finally, I was able to go back to work. It was a very long time, and uh, but I've been doing some work from home. They were really supportive for me at work, and they let me do some work from home, which is quite hard for a nurse. <laughs> but um, I was writing an education package for a theatre staff, so I could do that at home, and I've managed to get it nearly to the finish stage. In between your chemos and your long COVID. And your- <laughs> <laughs> when I my brain work. started working again, it was a long time till my brain oh. worked enough to really think things through but are you sure it's working (laughs) no I'm not sure I'm not sure I had to have a lot of checks and balances against the stuff I wrote but um, by Christmas I finished my education package and I submitted it and I uh, did my revalidation because I was ready to retire I was going to retire in March so I had to get my I did have to revalidate as a nurse to enable me, if I ever wanted to come back, that I would still be registered. So I did that. And then Dad got very sick. And we had to put him into a nursing home. And sadly, just after Christmas 2021, Dad died. And that was a, a big loss for me. I, I was very, very close to Dad. And, you know, he was, we were very alike. And, uh, and he'd had a he had a very tortured death. He was very sad and very, very never recovered from losing mum, and it was devastating really losing him. But he was ninety five, and you know how blessed were we? We had a we had him for ninety five years, and and they were ninety five good years. He was led a quality life, and I can imagine. I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I can imagine that at that time in your life when you're staring down the barrel of four cancers in your immediate family and you're losing your mum and your dad, the grief of losing your mum and dad but also seeing people pass away when you're in the midst of that as well, like it's pretty confronting. It was tough. It was really tough. But, you know, you do what you believe you want to do, you know, and I wanted to be with dad and I wanted to be with mum. That's why we stayed in England. And, uh, you know, it was it was difficult and and at the same time, I wanted to be in Australia because we were also, the best news of all, going to be grandparents. Yes. And in February, we got Journey. And Journey was born on the anniversary of my sister's death. I didn't know that. Yeah, she was like a little gift from Jojo. And she's oh. called Journey because it's because of it. She's oh. like a little gift from Bill hasn't told me that part. Well, in Australia, it was actually the 10th of February. My sister died on the 9th. But in England, at our time, 
when we heard that she'd arrived, it was February the 9th. Oh. So that was, that's very special. And she's beautiful, as you know. I'm a bit biased. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> anyway, so the great thing was we came to Australia. We, in April, two, when she was two months old, we, we were organised to come to Australia. And Barry still had a little bit of treatment to go because he still had this really nasty thing lurking around called prostate cancer, which hadn't been dealt with. So come Christmas, he'd had some more investigations and they'd said, yeah, it does need treating, but, you know, we'll give you some options and you can choose. So uh, we chose our, our option and it may have been different to what he would have chosen if he hadn't had anything else wrong with him. But by this stage, we're talking about quality of life. And he did not want to go through surgery and chemo. Surgery meant would have meant that we couldn't come to Australia. And he said, I'm going to Australia by hook or by crook to see my granddaughter. So prostate cancer can wait. <laughs> <laughs> so off we tootled to Australia with the doctor's blessing. Not one of them said don't come. You know, it's not it's it's a good idea, but just bear in mind now he doesn't have any antibodies to COVID and they got COVID in Australia now and we said, Oh well, we'll take care, you know, it's we sort of used to COVID now. Take some tests and we'll do what we have to do. And off we came, where we came to Australia. And that's when we saw you last year. Yeah. That was the most fabulous trip. We loved every minute of it, even though it rained the whole time. But that was <laughs> minor detail. <laughs> minor. <laughs> we went home on the 29th, 28th of May. And on the 29th of May, Barry tested positive for COVID. And that's a whole new story. <sighs> this was one of the hardest parts, wasn't it, Di? Yeah, we, we thought cancer was bad. We hadn't, we hadn't knew nothing about COVID. I'd just had it and we thought we knew about COVID, but we didn't know what having COVID if you were immunosuppressed meant. And he was very, very ill. As you know, he was very ill. He was hospitalised for a month. Uh, we had to give our permission for him to go to intensive care. Uh, I knew what COVID was like now, and I was terrified it was um, going to be, you know, it was really challenging. It was really awful. He was ill, very, very ill, from May until the middle of September. He only stayed in hospital a month because he couldn't really stand it any longer, and we took him home because they agreed that I would look after him at home which I did. I looked after him at home, August and September, and it was pretty nerve-wracking because he had a fever every single night until the middle of September, and every single night I'd think, God, I wish he'd have these fevers during the day when I could contact people easily. But it was always at night. It was always in the night, and I used to lie there and look at him and thinking, is he shaking? Is that another rider? And uh, anyway. Anyway, miraculously, halfway through September, he could work at one day and he said, we didn't have a temperature yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, and the doctors had supported us and they kept saying to us, if you just ride it out, the temperatures will settle down, the breathlessness will settle down, we will settle down. And, and he did, he did, he did settle down. And he's, he's still on that road to recovery now. He's not 100%. He's not 100%. But he's... He's um, 
much better. And here we are. We're in wow. Australia again. He, I was about to say he walked into my kitchen the other day and I remember like I just remember standing there just thinking, how are you standing in front of me? And also how do you look so good? Because you have been like on the toughest road mm. I can ever imagine and you're standing here in front of me yeah. and Baz is big, right? Like he's solid and you told me how like he got very light on the scales. Yeah, he lost nine kilos in about while he was in hospital he lost nine kilos. And you showed me pictures and I was like, whoa, but when he walked into my kitchen the other day it looked like Baz again. And I just remember just thinking, and this is sometimes I guess one of the challenges with this kind of adversity is you kind of leave the house often when you're feeling well and it, it people don't see what it's like behind closed doors. They don't see the fear. They don't see the tears. They don't see the grief. They don't see the anger. They don't see, you know, so much happens behind closed doors when you're trying to find a way through yeah but he's he's tough oh, there was no way he wasn't going to come to australia this year oh no way and everybody said but you know because covid the numbers are rising again he's going you know what? I, don't, I really don't care you know i'm gonna go to australia we're gonna have a good time we'll take care we'll take some masks and we'll keep them in our bag because i believe they work pretty well when they're tucked away in your bag i didn't see him wear a mask <laughs> once just so we can clarify <laughs> I'm like, are you sure you bought masks? <laughs> I said to him, should you be putting your mask on? He says, yeah, probably. <laughs> but, you know, we've had oh. many, many conversations about do you live life or do you shit yourself away? In England, there is a massive cohort of people, and it's supposedly 500,000 people who are still shielding because they're in that same cohort that he is, extremely vulnerable. And they're still shielding. That was never going to work for us, Ali. Nah, Daz would never take that. <laughs> never no. going to work for us. <laughs> you know, I don't like no. to say it, but you know what? You know, it's, he's not a slippers and pipe type of a bloke. You know, he's not. You know, he, he's not. Nah, he wants to watch the Wallabies. He wants to, you know, he wants to watch Bill's team play football. He wants to go out to dinner, he wants to live life and we've made that decision because that's what we're going to do and we're going to do it and you know there could well be a cost attached to it that we won't like but you know we aren't going to lie down and take a death sentence now and I sometimes think it's really hard for some people outside to understand that but you know we've had conversations about this we're very much the same like quality of life over quantity and when you stare down the barrel enough you start to really appreciate experience and just you that's the one thing you can't recreate you can't you know money you can make work you can do but you never get this time back and it's you know it's actually it's you know we we are so thankful that we've in a way, been given an opportunity to really work out what's important. You work out what's important. You work out what, which of your relationships are important and which you think, actually, you know what, much as I don't really like that idea, you know, that relationship isn't any good for us right now. But, you know, we have worked out what is, what is important and what we do want to do and It was like when you came the other night and I said to you on the couch, we were all snuggled up under a rug and I was like, Di, I have a bit of a confession. I was like, 
I know you should probably see everyone and I should be introducing you to a few people, but I actually just want you guys to myself right now. And you said, I know. (laughs) We were like, because we literally just didn't leave that couch the whole time you guys were there because it is so precious and we can't get this back. I know, I know. And that's why we're coming again. Yes, (laughs) and we're coming up. But we were standing in the kitchen and looking around, there was eight illnesses standing in our kitchen and I was like, far out. This is insane. I mean, look at us. I don't feel like we, we're ill people. I just feel like no. you know, we've had a bit of misfortune, you know, and I think, <laughs> you know, like let's get on with life. I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing. Well, no one can get on with life other than us, right? We're yeah. the only ones that have that power to go, you know what, we're going to do what we can. And one thing about you all having cancer at the same time, nobody, nobody ever gets a chance to feel sorry for themselves. You know, like there's no self pity because, no. like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you just look me, across but, the kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you know, I can't. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! So that was gone, and we and Laura, we have blessed with Laura's positive nature. She's just kept us going. You know, she said, "All oh, right, you know, like we're going to." Go to France this weekend. Oh, I've booked a little trip to Scotland to a lighthouse. I think we'll enjoy. And the nutrition, like she just (laughs) tackled it, you know, like, oh, I've learned so much in the conversations I've had. We eat so much sourdough, kefir, you know, kombucha, kimchi. You know, I feel like I'm, you know, well, should be healthy. (laughs) (laughs) So, Di... There is so much that we haven't spoken about. I want to honour that space as well. Just to reiterate, we're talking three years. Like this conversation has been a moment in your life, a moment of time in your life, and there is so much more that we haven't spoken about today. When you think through what you've been through through those three years, what are the things that you're taking away from it as you look back and reflect, I know the journey is far from over. Well, you know, I mean, I think really, I know it's a really odd thing to say, and I found myself saying so many times in the last few years, but I sort of feel lucky. You know, like we have had good treatment. I mean, it was bad like getting all the diseases, but we were well treated when so many people weren't. And I tell you something, Ali. You know, in my darkest moment in the middle of the night, you only have to think about what's going on in Ukraine and you can't feel sorry for yourself. You know, there's so much out there that is so much, so much suffering and so much worse stuff. We've been blessed because we've had good care. We live in a country where we can get good care. We've got an enormous amount of fantastic people around us in two countries. You know, it's so much so that we don't know where we want to live because there's so many good people in the UK and so many good people in Australia. And Mm. it's just a difficult decision because actually, you know, we've been truly blessed in our relationships, our healthcare, and I don't know. We have been given a perspective on our lives that many people don't ever get. Mm. I say that too. I think there's that's the gift, isn't it? It's the perspective that you look through life with. And I wanted to say, Di, too, with that, like I think when I think through what our whole family's been through, both our families, it's like 
There are moments, right? There are moments that you think, how? How are we going to do another hour or another day or another week? Or where am I going to find the strength? Or I don't know if I can, <laughs> I don't know if I can take another diagnosis, but they're moments in time. And then what I've noticed in you is you have this incredible way of being able to summon something from deep, deep inside you that then allows you to move forwards, but move forwards with what you're talking about, that feeling of luck and that doing what you can and that soaking up the moments and the taking the trips to Australia and that I'm not going to let this hold me back. Like there are those moments that are the darkest moments that are the darkest moments where it's hard to see the light and then then this massive light comes out of it <laughs> and lights up the whole world, you know? Well, sometimes like, you know, I remember Meg, my wonderful counsellor, saying to me, you know, a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't cope with this. And I said to her, so what does not coping look like? Yes. <laughs> Can you give me a rundown on that? <laughs> because I'm pretty sure I've got not coping. <laughs> I, I think I've got it. You know, like, do I look like it? Because I think I've got a lot coping. <laughs> she said, no, you don't look like it. So I said, oh, all oh, right. Well, I don't know what it looks like then. <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing so much because the principal of the school said to me this morning, I had a word with him yesterday when we had some big stuff happening and I saw him this morning and I said, oh, geez, I'm so sorry about yesterday. I seriously wasn't coping. And he said to me, is that you not coping? <laughs> Because you – and I was like, oh, no, I was a mess. And he's like, no, no, yeah. and th- because we don't realise it, right? Like we have just had to soldier on yeah. at all costs because no one else is going to do it. <laughs> like at the end of the day you didn't have an option. That's true. And that's why I always talk about resilience gets born through adversity. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does. I mean, my next-door neighbour, she said to me, oh, but you're, you're resilient, Dan. I'm thinking, no, I don't feel resilient. I really don't feel resilient. I feel like I've been knocked over by a double-decker bus and then another one came behind it from the Bondi bus shelter and another one. I don't feel at all resilient. You know, what's resilience? It just it can't be what I'm feeling. <laughs> no one wants a dose of this. <laughs> Die of all of this, of everything that we've spoken about on here in this podcast, what was the most difficult moment for you? Uh, without hesitation, it was Laura's diagnosis. You know, the kids, you know this, the kids, mm. it's difficult to describe how hard that is. She's the most brave, courageous woman, and she's she just handled it with such dignity and, you know, Concern for us and how we would feel knowing that she was going through that was her her overriding concern, and that just speaks volumes about it to me. But yeah, without a doubt, that was that was that was the toughest moment. It's that you'd wish it upon yourself a hundred times over before you don't want your kid to have a cold let alone anything more, you know. It's those moments that break me as a mum, makes me cry now, are the kids, right? Your kids are younger than Laura, but Laura's young. And I couldn't even wish it on myself. I already had it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) could have wished it, yeah. (laughs) I just, you know, it's tough. You know, they're your most precious. And, you know, my son, Bill, you know, it was tough for him. 
He was 12,000 miles away. Yes. We couldn't get to him. He couldn't get married. I know, and neither could I because the borders were shut. And I remember speaking to you being like, I'm doing everything I can to get up to see Bill, but I'm not allowed up there because of COVID. And I just was so aware of how isolated he would feel right now with his three family members. There's only four of you in the family. with the three of them overseas going through what you went through, I cannot imagine what that would have been like for him. It was tough for him. It was incredible. I think it was really tough for him. And, um, you know, it was tough for us not being able to get here and not being able to, you know, to be, to be, it was very tough being away from him. Mm. But he got on with it and he gave us journey. And, I you know. know. That was the greatest gift. I'm so aware that we need to finish up on this podcast, but we haven't touched on yet around just your career and that was a huge loss as well. I mean, we've spoken about the personal loss and the grief with illness, but we haven't spoken about what it was like for you being ripped away from your career that had to find you for decades. That describes it. I did feel ripped away from it. I felt ripped away from it by COVID. Because one day I could do it and the next day I couldn't do it. And I couldn't physically do it. I I went back to work, but it was really hard for me to go back to work. And I really struggled. And I I did complete what I wanted to complete, the education package, which was important to me because for 45 years I've been a nurse and I just wanted to leave something behind for the next generation. And the only thing you can really leave behind is... Well, apart from the passion, which is sometimes hard to leave behind in this day and age, but it's, it's education. It's it's how do you do the job? And I, I wanted to leave that behind. And I, I did do it in a written way, but I didn't I didn't do it how I would have loved to have done it if things had been different. And I'm hoping, Di, that, you know, that door may still stay ajar for you because, again, we had this conversation around. I said it does feel like you're not done yet, but it's not a right now. Yeah, I really hope it does. I mean, for a start off, you know, my voluntary career with Operation Smile, I can't even bear to dwell on thinking that that might be over, you know, really, because that was just a wonderful 10 years I volunteered for them and the work was just amazing. and. I'm really hoping I can get back to it, but it's not straightforward. No. So what's next for you, Di, other than uh, the wedding and all of us getting yeah, together? That's the next um, most exciting I thing. I know. Well, and then it's how we have to, we will make a decision about whether we come back to Australia. And, you know, it's. No pressure. If anyone wants Di to come back to Australia, <laughs> just write in the chat, Aussie, 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 because, you know, just cheer me along here and no. We, 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 everyone, I'm sure, you know, yeah. speaking for everyone that's listening to this episode, today that we're all behind you in whatever decision you make and there's not a right decision here. The family ties to come back to Australia are absolutely huge. They're the biggest, biggest thing. We stumble a little bit with are we, are we very attached to our medical teams, our healthcare system, especially when Barry's got an ongoing condition that's going to require some more treatment? How's that going to look in Australia? I think it'll look okay, but we're probably uninsurable. They're all big decisions yeah, to weigh up. These are the things that just bring us to our senses a little bit. And the magnitude of a move is a bit daunting. <laughs> we collected a lot of stuff in that 13 years. 
So what's one thing on the horizon for you other than the wedding that you're looking forward to? Or the next baby, whenever that might be. <laughs> That's not our family, just to clarify if anyone's thinking. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. We've ordered another one for 2024. <laughs> <laughs> we've placed our order. We've put down a deposit um, and we just made sure we doubled it just to make sure that it's going to come in 2024. No pressure built <laughs> on that one. And I, I just realised that my one criteria that you had given me was to ask about your favourite place because that used to be in the beginning episodes mm-hmm. and we don't do it so much I now. I might have dropped it. <laughs> yes, but I know that this is something that you had prepped for. So instead of asking who makes you belly laugh, what <laughs> was your favourite place as a child? We had a big holly bush in our garden where I grew up, in the house I grew up in, the house I was born in that house and I grew up in that house and mum and dad had it till I was well and truly in my 30s, I think. And inside the garden was a holly bush. You could crawl through, you had to crawl through an enormous amount of prickles to get to the little sanctuary in the centre. And now I look back and I think, yeah, that's about it, isn't it? That's the place. <laughs> you got to crawl through a lot of thorns and prickles to get to the inner sanctuary. So there, there you go. It's funny, when I thought about that question, that holly bush, came straight into my mind. Straight in. Thank you so much, Di. I know firsthand now after doing my own episode how hard it is to come on but also having conversations with you this week. Like this was not an easy conversation, was it? No, it wasn't. It wasn't easy. It was easier when I was doing it than it was when I was thinking about it. But I didn't know how I would feel doing it. And actually I I feel like I'm telling the story. You know, it's... I feel it's okay. It's okay. We've done okay. Oh, you've done more than okay. But you're leaving a legacy for everyone that's going through adversity or experiencing something similar, even if it's a piece of it or all of it. It's it's speaking to the world and having that shared experience and that piece of connection and that piece of human. You know, through all of this, it's like the middle of that bush. It's like the middle of it is is that human centered piece that is like we are just human at the end of the day and, and that connection piece is so important. Yeah. Well, I, I, I sort of don't hope that our story helps anyone else because I would like to think that no one else will be in this position ever. <laughs> <laughs> but if they are, you know, you do get through and you can. You can beat it. You can cope with it. You can get it in its place in your life. And you can have a life even with it. I think that's the message that I'm taking away and I'm going to reflect on this, but how much you and Baz and Lauren Bill still are living life to the fullest. Absolutely. You know, if someone had said to you that you were doing the things that you're doing now, this week, next week, the next few weeks, you would have been like, don't be ridiculous that you are here. Sometimes you don't tell them. Sometimes we just go, oh, (laughs) we'll just keep quiet about this, you know. And like, oh, by the way, I'm going to Australia. I know they've got, yeah, well, <laughs> never mind. We're doing it anyway. <laughs> it's, it's like the when we were going out on date date days yeah. during the um, ICU. Better off not mentioning that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you do, you get to that point that you're like, this is a decision we're making for our family for joy and for experience and nothing's going to stop us. And, you know, when we came over here for four and a half months, which meant we had to bring an enormous amount of medications, including injections, which I had to be very, you know what, what one doctor said, don't do it 
they all said, we'll make it happen for you, you know, we'll give you this or we'll give you that letter from the customs, we'll give you, you know, and not, not one doctor said, you're crazy. Not one doctor said, stay at home and put your feet up. And that's my shout out to everyone listening. What's one thing you can do today? What's one thing you can do this week that is living your life the way you want to live it and feeling free like that wild swimming you spoke about or whatever it is for you? But what is that one thing that you've been sitting on that you haven't done or you're just thinking now's not the right time? Just do it. Just do it. Life is way too short. If you're not taking away that from this episode, you might have been listening to something else at the same time. (laughs) Thank you so much, Di. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for making it easy. Oh, I wasn't sure how Di and I were going to get through that interview. Um, I think my editor is going to have a fairly big job on his hands because there were so many tears and so many moments that we both broke down crying that we had to pause the interview, take a moment, regather. It It has just been such a long road and such a huge journey. But I mentioned it at the beginning in the introduction that I I admire Barry, Di and Laura so much for their resilience, their ability to live life to its absolute fullest and their ability to be able to focus on other people when everything in their world is crumbling. Like Di is so others focused and always thinks to ask, you know, how someone else is or what is their life like when she's in the midst of chaos herself. If I can take a leaf out of your book, Di, I I will be so proud and I hope that that's a gift that I can give my children along the way. Thank you everyone for listening to Di's story today and we will see you all next week for another episode. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.